Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday the 20th of July. Michael, how have you been? Fantastic. Excellent. A couple of things we want to talk about this week. Obviously, we have to talk about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice and Liberal icon in America. Obviously, because, you know, judiciary of a foreign country, you know, have to talk about that. It shouldn't be, but her death has opened up a seat that has... We'll probably have more policy impact over the long run than Trump's presidency, because that's how America likes their Supreme Court, apparently. Yes. Cork County Council have a couple of views on China. We want to run through quickly, mostly because it's interesting, relatively unexpected, other than how brazen it is, and because they are by no means the only county council I would suspect of having these views. Then we want to talk about the rise of the far right as... I don't know if you saw the the flurry of pieces talking about this in the newspapers over the weekends. So much so I have started to describe it as the rise of journalism and the rise of the far right, which I suppose is a sort of rising tide lifts all boats scenario. It's a terrifying vista, Gary. Um, The the right is rising like the the mighty and majestic mountains of Meath. So let's let's go to Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Orbg as she is affectionately known. As she, no, as she is affectionately known. She was ne- This is this new thing now. It's because... Oh, stop it. Just start, start, I'm starting to sound like some dyspeptic colonel writing letters to the Sunday Telegraph. It's... And I'm going to blame Twitter and say it's because nobody can write anymore and everything has to be in 140 characters. But she wrote Bader Ginsburg. She was an RBG. It's like... God, it's like, was she a rapper? Was this something she'd started to, later in her career? She was the big G. You can kind of chant or BG. It kind of works. Could be a run to the Jewels song about that. I could see that happening. I have enjoyed the uh, the very the think pieces that have come out after a death because Bader Ginsburg was a, a stalwart liberal who some critics, Michael, might say... Uh, had a fluid relationship with the constitutionality of her actions. Well, Ruth was very much of the opinion that the Constitution was a living document that had to be understood in the context of the times, that it had to evolve and change as the people and its the needs of the people evolved and changed. So you could find new rights in it over time that weren't there when it was written because no one would have thought about that. So you can find, let's say, the right to an abortion in the right to privacy. There's a, there's a great phrase which is very useful to anybody involved in the practice of constitutional law, which is in the penumbra. Penumbra means in the shadow, umbra being the uh, Latin for shadow. So in the penumbra, so in the, it, you have rights which are explicitly given. Now, now, Gary, somebody very important, I can't remember who did, oppose when the American Constitution was being put together the inclusion of a Bill of Rights because at the time somebody would say like Hamilton or Jefferson or Adams, somebody said sort of big big name, he opposed the Bill of Rights because he said that there will be people who will be so foolish as to believe that if we make a list of rights that are given to the people that theirs are the only rights that are given to the people so we shouldn't include them. So it's not true to say that there, I mean, there are no other rights, but what they discovered was that if you say there's a right to privacy, and if you root around in the shadows uh, 
and the edges of all these rights, you can find other rights living there. But you know, you have to go looking and you have to be creative. So it is possibly worthwhile actually talking about the, that idea of a living constitution because it's not one, or it shouldn't be one that comes up much outside America. It, it does occasionally, but people tend to be quite careful not to phrase what they are doing in living constitution language because... I don't think people outside America would like that. Constitutions it's, it have different roles in different societies and different legal systems, obviously. So, for example, in the United States, it's very difficult to change the Constitution, uh, which is something you'd, all constitutions were in the typical, a, ty, a, ty, a typical mark of a constitution, a written, a written constitution. For example, as the Brits would always point out, they have a constitution that's just not written. Is that there is a, one of the things that marks it out from ordinary law, ordinary statute law, is that there is a special process required for the change of it. Now, in some countries, it's relatively easy. It's more difficult than an ordinary law. But in the United States, you have to have you have to have to, you need super majorities going through both the House and the Senate, and then you need the consent of is it three quarters of the states. I don't think it's even two-sixths of the states, I think three-quarters of the states, two-thirds of the states. So it's very difficult. In Ireland, you can only change the constitution by popular referendum. So you make these things difficult. And one of the reasons is that historically, as constitutions were understood, they are, it is, they're supposed to be dead documents because they're supposed to be, they're designed to slow down change which might be dangerous constitutions are protective documents they're usually they're designed to either protect minorities from majorities or to protect the citizens from the power of the state but they're they're fundamentally they're protective foundational they're also aspirational a constitution will often will give you a sense of what kind of country this nation wants to be what it's its values are supposed to be, what its spirituality, if it has what it's supposed to be. You get a sense of what the, the aspirations of the people are embedded in the Constitution. And the, in the United States, probably more than most countries, it's probably more, definitely more than most countries, the Constitution is this absolutely foundational, it's scriptural, it's a scriptural document. And the problem with scripture is that People have different attitudes. What is written is written. It is literally true. Actually, there is one thing. You, you mentioned how to change the US Constitution, but you didn't mention one thing they can do, which is actually very interesting. Basically, under Article 5 of the United States Constitution, I, th I think 5.2, it's it's the convention. Yeah, so they can have a if, constitutional convention. If two-thirds of the states come forward and say they want a constitutional convention, then a constitutional convention will be called. And my understanding is that the Constitutional Convention can look at anything it wants when it's formed, which is why there's a big push, largely amongst Republicans, to call a Constitutional Convention, and there has been for, at this point, decades, although it's actually gathering pace the last couple of years. They've gotten close a couple of times, but they've never quite get it true. But basically, were that to be called, anything could come out of it. I don't think an Article 5 convention has ever actually been held? I don't believe so, no. But the thing is, because of the, the collapse of the Democratic Party 
at a local state level across the states in the last 15 or 20, 20 not more, 20 years. Increasingly, even if in low population states, the number of states that are becoming safely Republican has been gradually increasing. So they're getting closer and closer all the time to that magical number. While the, Ameri the, the Democrats are dominant in large places like California, New York, where they get larger and larger majorities all the time. Just on the, the living document thing, in, in the United States, there are basically two views. One is that the Constitution should constantly be viewed through modern lens, largely because original interpretations may, just as a matter of policy, not really work. So it's more of a pragmatic view than an actual legalistic view. Ginsburg would have been one of the major proponents of that idea. On the other side, you have different theories, but one of the largest opposed to it would be the originalists. And the Federalist Society, who are picking pretty much all of Donald Trump's judges, would be originalists. And they believe that the document should only be viewed through the eyes of basically in the sense it was originally signed. So they would tend to be large into historical reading, reading other, other things that were published around the time of the Constitution by the people involved to try and get a more complete sense of what is meant. Now, the major difference this has tended to mean, or should mean, is that proponents of a little document, and one of the dangers of it for people who are opposed to it, is that it makes it very easy for judicial activism which is where judges decide to find things in the Constitution or make rulings based less on what is actually there and more on their policy preferences. Well, they wouldn't say it's their policy preferences. They would, obviously, they would say it's the evolution of the change of society. So, for example, there's a prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, right? So, some judges uh, at different times have decided that execution is maybe not unusual, but it's cruel or falls within the ambit of cruel, cruel and unusual punishment. You can't execute people because of that. Others would say that the, the fairness elements that in the Constitution have evolved to a certain point and be, that we, we know there are so many layers of protection that it takes so long to actually achieve a final uh, adjudication so that somebody can be executed. This could take 10 years, 20 years, that that in itself is a form of cruelty. And therefore, you shouldn't do it. You should abolish it. So there will be one part of the Constitution where that understanding of what that means has evolved and changed. And you could say, well, a plain text reading for a, a modern person rather than trying to understand what it meant for somebody in 1776. But just reading the text as a plain text reading today would mean that we shouldn't do X or Y. Yeah, I, I, I rather agree with Scalia on this. For those who don't know, Justice Scalia was also on the Supreme Court, apparently quite good friends with Ginsburg. Oh, great was at the time, the before his death, sort of leading proponent of originalism on the court. And he said, um, he gave an explanation, a fairly fair explanation of the living constitution uh, position. And then I believe said, uh, but you'd have to be an idiot to believe that. The constitution is not a living organism. It is a legal document. It says things and it doesn't say other things. Yeah. He also made the point that there is basically nothing you can't fit in under the uh, living organism document. Like the, the Roe v. Wade. The right to abortion is found in the right to privacy, something that was clearly never intended 
and even at the time was considered very politically expedient, but also pretty terrible law. No, I think just on this issue of Roe v. Wade, it's important to, I think, to either explain or to remind listeners in Ireland that this was not a decision which made abortion legal in the United States. It was the decision that made it a right in the United States. Mm. And because there were, up to that, and this is the point that Scalia would make, is that, Scalia, Scalia would make, is that lots of things would be legal in one state, but not legal in another, because the United States Constitution is a federal document. And it says all, it's, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, all of those, except for those rights explicitly retained by the federal government, all other rights and powers are given to the states and to the individual citizens. So, for example, before Roe versus Wade, abortion was legal in New York. It may not have been legal, for example, in Tennessee. But after Roe v. Wade established it as a constitutional right, not that you have that states had the right to make it legal, but rather states did not have the right to make it illegal. So you had a fundamental change. So it meant that in no state could you make abortion, you have laws against abortion, no matter how the voters of the of that particular state wanted. So it was this. It it wasn't a. People, I think, think of it in the same way as they think of, uh, say, the constitutional change here, where it was a question of making something illegal legal. It wasn't. It's was a question of something making something which could or couldn't be legal into a right. And that is a long and roundabout way of explaining why the Supreme Court position is important. If Trump gets his way, and he's already said he's going to try and get someone true, they'll go with someone who's been vetted by the Federalist Society, and that means two things. One, they will be immensely qualified. Even the democratic media in America has had to admit that the picks put forward by Donald Trump for federal appointments have been incredibly well legally credentialed. Um, when you look at the amount who clerked, generally in America they would look at who you clerked for, who you, who you worked for, as an indication of quality of the legal applicant and the amount of Trump's people who clerked either for the Supreme Court or definitely clerked at a fairly prestigious federal level is leaps and bounds above what it was before. And that's largely because Trump basically went to a legal organization and said, basically, get me your best people. Get me your best young people. Trump's picks have also been much younger than usual, about 10 years younger, I think, on average. Yeah. And pretty strict ideological originalists. So Trump and McConnell are going to be having a massive impact on America's legal profession 30 years from now. Maybe 40. But if Trump gets the pick, it'll go to an originalist. If the Democrats get the pick, they'll try and put someone through from the living constitution side of things. Because most of the major social movements in America over the last two generations, maybe have come not from legislation, but have come from the court, which is why the Republicans are so determined to get as many of their people on it. And I can see their point. I, I view the living constitution idea as slightly dangerous. It, it's too open to abuse. Far, far too open to abuse, actually. Which is not to say the originalists have always, should we say, ruled as one would expect an originalist to... But those have tended to be instances, individual cases, where you can at least go, that was an odd ruling. 
as opposed to, well, that's what they're like every time. No, I, I think increasingly it's the case that progressive just legal scholars and lawyers in the United States, and not just in the United States, a kind of a, a worldwide contagion, see the see see the law as as a, a vehicle for progress and a vehicle for progressive social change, and that they will find in the constitution, because in a they, what the constitution ultimately for the for the for the living text person is not so much a document but a mirror because they will they will either find themselves in it or it's a place where they project their own values because the constitution reflects all of the highest and most wonderful values of the united states and since their values are the highest and best values of the united states they must inevitably be in there somewhere if you could only find them i think it's just it's i understand the attraction of it but i just think from the point of view when you understand what the purpose of a constitution is and the explicit purpose of a constitution stated very often when people establish it as a document which is actually designed to be dead it is part of the job of a constitution to be dead to be a dead weight to be a drag on the speed of change to regard it instead as some kind of constantly self-updating self uh, refreshing document which is part of the aggiornamento of the of the of the local culture just doesn't seem to me doesn't make any sense to me obviously i think i would say this but i think that the movement towards a living constitution view from more progressive judges has been a large part of why the course has become so damaged i would say so and i think it's it has whether or not one agreed with the social changes that have happened in Ireland, say for example, the change in the definition of marriage, I think we did it the right way. In too many jurisdictions, you had votes, possibly referendum, possibly elections, where the issue was part of the contest and it was rejected, but ultimately it arrived, it came into law through the courts. I think that's a very unsatisfactory way of achieving social change, and it's a divisive way it plants and whereas we did it for good or for ill we've done it through the through votes of popular of popular votes of the people and it is the voice of the people well that's the thing i can fundamentally disagree with certain votes but they were the votes they as the constitution was laid out they were held and carried out and a result was achieved whereas in america it's sort of a well depends on you know 30 years ago, which party controlled the presidency in the Senate at the time a seat came up, and it's just a total mess. And the thing is, I suppose, the, the, the most famous case that's always talked about, and there are others legally maybe more important, but Roe versus Wade, is probably also one of the most egregious examples of the law being used to drive social policy, irrespective of what the Constitution says. Even at the time, People who are pretty liberal yeah, in their legal outlook regarded Roe versus Wade as bad law. At the time, and certainly later on, the critiques of Roe versus Wade were pretty savage. It was recognised almost immediately that this was, the, this was the court acting, in a sense, as a legislature. And that was not a good thing. I mean, you also have the problem that if the document is considered to be living based upon the views of any particular judge... What do you do where a judge 
believes the Constitution should now confer a right or should now take away a right that the Constitution itself explicitly either supports or opposes. Well, you see, that's a problem because I mean, if we take, you go back to the, the, the example of the const- of uh, the uh, execution, right? Uh, I can't remember when, was it in the 70s? The, the Supreme Court effectively halted const- ex- executions across the United States. Like, nobody can argue that executions were perceived by the from, by the framers of the constitution or the or the supreme or the legislature of the uh, around uh, at the foundation of the state or the judges nobody can argue that they did not think that execution was a perfectly normal and legal mode of behavior because they all practiced it nobody ever questioned it it was such a it was such an obvious obvious truth that it was legitimate for the state to take people's lives once legal processes had been observed and yet it was found somewhere in the constitution in whatever it was 200 years later somewhere they found in the constitution a justification to to make uh, uh, the death penalty illegal so it there once you decide that you want to find something, you'll find it. But anyway, on from that's that's why this is important. But on the actual practical side of things, a couple of you know, quick Q and A. Does Trump have time to get a judge through? Considering how long until the presidency? To which the answer is yes. And an important point here is that even if Trump loses the presidency, he's still in the position until January. Yes, boss. There will be Senate seats up for election also. And the question is whether or not will he hold, will Republicans hold the Senate after his election? So he could lose the presidency and still have the power to push through a judge, but due to the Senate elections, he could have an easier or a harder time of it. So the aim will be to get it through before that if they think it could go through. Now, what's required for that? So due to the changes that the Democrats pushed through under the Obama administration, which again, uh, you needed to have, I think, 61 votes originally, and now you only need 51. You need a bare majority. Or you need, sorry, you need 50 because then Pence can come in as a tiebreaker. The vice president can come in on these votes as a tiebreaker, although if not needed, they won't come in. The Democrats changed it down to the lower level in order to stop the Republicans uh, filibusting, or what would effectively is running the clock on Obama-era judicial appointments, a decision which Mitch McConnell told them they would regret, and regret sooner than they thought. Something which has um, proved to be pretty prescient. So there are currently 53 GOP senators. So they can lose three of them, and then Pence can come in and push it over the line. Now, are there three... The thing you have to understand about America at the minute is American politics is hyper-partisan. So there are not that many wavering votes. There are maybe four senators who I could see splitting. And it's not that they will certainly split, it's that they could split. A couple of the senators have come out and said that they won't vote on things in this period because during the Obama administration, McConnell said he wouldn't allow a vote on a Supreme Court vacancy to go through because he thought, you know, this is a lame duck president and uh, the people should get to vote in the president and effectively the seat, a position which he has now reversed 
there are those who say that he had that what was previously called the Biden rule, now is called the McConnell rule, was <laughs> I'm just saying that there are those who say that actually the rule is being misrepresented. The rule was that was when the president and the Senate were of different parties. That is, that is what McConnell is now saying. He's saying that during the Obama era, we were the uh, we were the majority Senate, and we were elected partially to stop his judicial appointments. And now we're the majority, and we were elected partially to ensure these judicial appointments go through. So we're going to make sure they go through. Now McConnell has come out and said that he is going to hold the hearings. Trump has come out and said that he is going to put forward someone. He said he's going to put forward a woman. There's a couple of contenders in the mix, some of whom are funner than others, but all of whom will have the great advantage that they probably won't be accused of rape, which is a uh, is really a win-win this time. So if it's a woman and it looks like it's going to be a woman, um, that rules out. That probably rules out Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, I think, has said he's not actually interested in the position. I thought. I thought I thought you were going to say Ted Cruz has actually said he's not a woman, and that would have been disappointing. But okay, uh, we'll we'll take it that Ted isn't isn't at the moment interested in the position. I the one that the the the, the one the lady that had been speculated previously for the last uh, last season, but the the rumor then went around that she was being saved up for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat was Amy Coney Barrett who is a professor of uh, law in Notre Dame. She is. She is beloved of religious conservatives. She is strongly anti-abortion. She is, again, a woman, which is handy. I think she's just seven children. She's Catholic, so she'll fit right in with the rest of the Supreme Court, which in a country... The makeup of the Supreme Court is actually fascinating because in a country that doesn't have that many Catholics and doesn't have that many Jews but is heavily Protestant. The Supreme Court is entirely Catholic and Jewish, assuming that Gorsuch isn't actually a Protestant, which no one seems to be able to pin down. I I think, uh, I'm, I'm off the top of my head, I think David Souter was the last uh, Protestant on the court. And when he came in, I think Kennedy was still on the court. So the court was definitely... It was six three, six. Uh, Clarence Thomas had been an Episcopalian, became a Catholic, or went back. Had been Catholic then, Episcopalian. Now he's Catholic again. So it was six when it, so it's Sotomayor, uh, uh, Kagan were the two appointees under Obama. Uh, Kagan is Jewish, Sotomayor is Catholic. So you have you had up till the death of the Justice Ginsburg, three Jews and six Catholics. Uh, no Protestant on the court. It is a bizarre demographic, particularly when you consider that until, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago, if you look at the numbers of Jews and Catholics on the court, I mean, it's handfuls. Tenney, who was regarded as one of the most brilliant ju jurists of the 19th century, but was also involved in a, in a case called the Dred Scott case, which kind of damaged his reputation. Tenney was, was the first... Catholic on the on the court, I think Justice Brandeis was the first Jewish justice, but they're very small numbers. Then suddenly, bang! I don't know what happened to the Pro did Protestants did Episcopalians and Presbyterians stop studying law or something? So we've got Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett is very highly lauded, very highly respected. 
quite young. You also have a uh, Cuban-American called Barbara Lagoa, and she's on the, um, she was the first Hispanic judge on the Florida Supreme Court, also a former federal prosecutor. And then the third name who has been thrown in, which I hadn't really heard about before, but a couple of people have mentioned, is a woman called Kate Comerford Todd. Mm-hmm. And she's the deputy White House uh, counsel. Now, I wasn't terribly familiar with her, but looking her up, you do get a, um, a sense of how highly qualified the Federalist Society picks are. So you're looking at someone who was the associate counsel to the president, which would be a very high position. She's been a partner in a uh, Washington, D.C. law firm. Mm-hmm. She has clerked for a Supreme Court judge. She's clerked for a federal judge in the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School. Executive editor of the Harvard Law Review. She's got an undergraduate degree from Cornell in Government History and International Relations. With distinction in all subjects and graduated cum laude again in history. That is a highly, um, that is a highly credentialed woman. Yeah, but is she Jewish or is she a Catholic? You know, Michael, it doesn't say on the Federalist Society webpage. Well, that's just not good enough, Gary. Now, Comerford, Comerford, that could, this is sort of an Irish sound to us. Todd, we need Todd, Todd, is Todd Irish? I'm not sure. We'll have to check that up because I don't know if they're, if they're, if you, if you can get on the court otherwise. I mean, t- technically, is, is re- replacing Ruth Bailey Ginsburg, do you have to replace her with a woman? Or a Jewish woman? Well, I think after what they saw with Kavanaugh, they're just going to... A woman is just easier. Yeah, this, yeah I would point true. just... While we joke about this, the Republican conception is that the thing about Kavanaugh was entirely fictitious and that that will happen to any male applicant they put forward to this post. Yeah. And it won't matter. It won't matter what they're like or how good they are. It will. It will just happen. So there is a certain drive to just pour forward a woman purely to stop the rape allegations that they believe to be entirely spurious and effectively guaranteed. But they have the time to get this through. They might not have the numbers. And if they do, it will torque the balance of the court heavily towards the Republicans. The issue is that they may go too far and then the Democrats may decide to pack the court. And once you start packing the court... Which is to say, we're, there's no limit on how many uh, Supreme Court judges there actually can be. There's a tradition as to the numbers, but there would be nothing stopping a president coming in and saying, I'm going to put six more people on the Supreme Court. People don't do it because once you do it, you'll eventually lose. And then your opponent will come in and they'll put 12 judges on the Supreme Court. And everything falls apart. They might do it. I don't know. It, that's... In the in the context of this kind of story, the phrase the nuclear option is used a lot. I think that would be the nuclear option. Uh, the last president to threaten to do it was Roosevelt. He I mean, he was basically a fascist, though. He was a fascist. He was a plain old-fashioned, enormously successful fascist. He was quite well liked. Well, that's what happens when you're king. Well, was he a fascist or was he just king? No, he was a fascist. But he was a fascist as well. There's actually some really interesting documentation from the um, from the period of fascists discussing who is a fascist, and Roosevelt comes up. They were pretty much in agreement that it was a fascist state. 
Which, considering, yeah, he did threaten to pack the court if they ruled against him and ruled effectively without limit, kind of makes yeah. sense. And ultimately, it was the, the threat of the pack that he would pack the court. The Supreme, the uh, Chief Justice, basically buckled and said, okay, that they would find unconstitutional legislation would be found constitutional uh, if he agreed not to not to expand the, the courts to that extent. Groucho Marx, here's a fun fact, uh, Groucho Marx despised Roosevelt and his principal reason was, and it's hard, we don't get this as non-Americans, but for a lot of Americans, when Roosevelt ran for the third term, for a lot of Americans, particularly traditional, traditionally minded people, philosophically traditional, uh, that was really offensive. George Washington f had served for two terms as president, and Washington effectively could have been king. In fact, I'm not sure if they didn't ask Washington, would he like to be king? And Washington made the deliberate public choice not to not to continue to stand out after two terms because if you served more than two terms the danger was you would effectively become king you would the opposition would die away it, it, would, it would be bad for the republic and that pattern was respected all the way through the 19th century and up until roosevelt nobody ever ran for a third term until roosevelt did so and then in fact for uh, a fourth and then he ruined it for everyone and then he ruined it Which for I suppose can show you, Michael, that fascism can both be very popular and work. And after him, they actually introduced a constitutional amendment which prohibited people from standing for more than two terms, which is interesting because, you know, after all the fact that people say that, a lot of people say Roosevelt, oh, he's one of the top three presidents of all time, greatest president of the, the 20th century because of the myth, which is completely without basis in reality, that he had saved the United States from the Great Depression, when in fact, uh, a lot of the, the most recent research would suggest that he actually deepened the recession, the depression, and extended it in, up by around five years longer than it should have been. But they, whatever about that, they still regarded him serving those extra terms as fundamentally reprehensible, because otherwise, why would you introduce uh, a change to the constitution? So, yeah, the, the question of packing the court, they may do it, uh, or they might threaten to do it. I think it would be politically a very, very tricky, dangerous kind of thing to do, but you never know. And again, America has become so hyper-partisan in parts that... They, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. So, look, we'll, we'll be coming back to this, uh, certainly, as it goes on, because... This is a pick that will have wide-ranging influence on America. And as we found from the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests, we just do what America does now. So yeah. it's important to know what the master does before, you know, the dog moves. Um, before we leave America, there was something I, I wanted to mention very briefly. And this is just something to amuse yourself of for a Sunday morning. Michael, I'm sure you've seen the universities in America have been having this we are racist moment and we've got to admit our structural oh, racism. Oh God, this saw, is the best thing I ever. I saw uh, a, an introductory class from one of the American universities and all the tutors were coming in and introducing themselves. But everyone was saying was, uh, 
I am a racist and a yeah, gatekeeper yeah, yeah, of white yes, supremacy. Absolutely, but this yeah. this is what's been happening. Massive amount of universities gotten into this. You know, acknowledging your past misdeeds, but also accepting that you are structurally racist. And uh, Princeton, the president of Princeton, came out and accepted that Princeton was structurally racist. But and more the United States Department of Education, on uh, September the 16th, wrote them a lovely letter saying, you are now under investigation. For because uh, it turns out that because they accept federal money, they accept millions upon millions of dollars of federal money. I think they say seventy-five million in federal Title IV taxpayer funds alone. Basically, the Princeton now have a uh, civil rights violation investigation against them for racism because apparently. Somebody had been listening to this person, the president of the university, saying Princeton is a deeply systemically racist institution. And according to the federal government, you can't be that and get money from the federal government. It had never occurred to me, but it's absolutely brilliant. It's like I imagine somebody standing up and saying, I am a murderer and I am a thief and a fraud. And I've been embezzling money for years. And then being horrified that the police should pop around to the house and say, so we'd like to bring you in for some questioning about the embezzlement and the murder and stuff. But, but, what? but, what, what, why? Well, you said you were doing this embezzling stuff. So I'll put the, um, I'll put the full letter <laughs> in the bottom of this. It's six pages long. And my personal favorite is that they, they basically say, we're now investigating you for uh, breaches of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah. But then they say, that Princeton has made many material non-discrimination and equal opportunity representation to students, parents, and consumers in the market for educational certificates during this time, and then goes on to explain that if Princeton is systemically racist, as they admit themselves to be, they may in fact have committed fraud. (laughs) Oh, it's brilliant. It just says, based on its admitted racism, the U.S. Department of Education is concerned that the uh, non-discrimination and equal opportunity assurances in its program participation agreements from at least 2013 to the present may have been false. And the department is further concerned Princeton knew or should have known that these assurances were false. Now, you see, you're faced with two choices here, Barry. Gary, if you're if you're Princeton, aren't you? If you actually believe that you are systemically racist and wicked, then you will embrace this investigation. You will cooperate with it fully, because this will be an opportunity for you to understand, analyze, face up to, and deal with the systemic racism in your institution. However, if you were just engaged in some kind of theatre a performance, if you're just virtue signaling and are now horrified and shocked that somebody is taking you at your word and is actually going to take away tens of millions of dollars from you and therefore you have to you would have to oppose it. It's going to be a very embarrassing. Do you remember you were you brought up the uh, study that showed that uh, sexual assault in Irish universities were running around 30 percent of students were sexually assaulted? Oh, yes, we're using an example of, of things people say they believe when they obviously don't believe them. Exactly. 
And I think that this is a kind of a version of that, that all these people, I don't believe that this lady actually believes in her heart, no more than the president of Stanford or the director of Harvard or whoever, that their institutions are anything except wonderful and fantastic and liberal and enlightened. But part of that is to go through this performance of saying, oh, we are so bad and wicked and awful. It's going to be a problem for them now. They're suddenly going, oh, uh, you, know, you know that thing I was saying about, well, it's not that I didn't mean it. It's just like it's more like poetic and kind of metaphorical. I didn't like mean it in a legally sort of inculpatory sense that you might take your money away from us is that okay no the the there's taking away the federal money but there's also the part where they say that uh the, the fraud is just the chef's kiss they, could but the great thing is they, they mention fraud and they say false misleading and actionable sustainable or substantial yeah. misrepresentation in violation of several laws that they quote yeah, and then yeah. when they say what they want they, they they say they want records and they say all records from January 1st, 2013 that relate to or reference systemic or embedded reference or racism. Because, of course, this means that any parent or student who's attended Princeton on the basis that it was going to be a not, a not racist but nice place and is now disabused and is horrified that they exposed their child to this systemically racist environment could sue, not just for their fees back, but presumably for damages. They also, and this is interesting because we know that the American, and it's no, it's, it's not, it's not in doubt, the American universities racially bias their admissions. There's a, yes, we know that. One of the things they ask for in this letter is a spreadsheet identifying every person who has, on the basis of race, colour, or national origin, been excluded from participation in, been denied the benefits of, or been subjected to discrimination under any programme or activity receiving federal financial assistance as a result of the racism of Princeton. Asians. So, uh, so the, 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 the absolutely demonstrable discrimination against Asians. Here's the, here's the fun part, Mark. It's which just, is, is systemic, by the way. I mean, they talk about it. It says that this spreadsheet should, one, identify every such person, two, provide his or her last known address and contact information, and three, specify his or her damages, if known, for the last five years. Oh, this is... Uh, I mean, it's more... I, I say Asians, why? Because for... Um, it is actually the case that for, until very recently, California had specific legislation which made it illegal to distinguish... Uh, applicants between applicants and discriminate between applicants for universities on the basis of race, which meant, for example, uh, Caltech has thirty six percent Asian undergraduate population. I think Stanford is around thirty five percent Asian population. Right as we speak, there is this, uh, there's a, 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 a lawsuit going through to Harvard because Harvard has admitted to dis discriminating against. Uh, Asian students in, in the sense that disproportionately they are not given uh, places which they would normally be given based on their academic results. And it's because Asians 
don't have the same personality and they're not like, you know... Yeah, Harvard basically said that Asian people are just uninteresting and don't have good hobbies. And don't have good hobbies. And admitted they don't, that, and no one cares. They don't play with lacrosse. Now, the problem is, Harvard does that, but so does Princeton, so does Browns. All of these universities discriminate against Asians in that Asians very significantly outperform... Now, Asians as a group, by the way, which is such an unf- actually racist and offensive notion, isn't it? You got everybody's lumped into this: the Bhutanese and the Koreans and the Japanese and the Chinese and the Laotians. They're all the same, you know. They're all just they're all Asians. Anyway, <laughs> on the basis of their every metric, they should be far more present in these Ivy League institutions than they are. So. There is actually structural and systemic racism as operation. It's just not in the way that it's supposed to be what they really mean by that. So there is evidence there, and it's. I think this. When I saw that, Gary, I I thought that is brilliant. There is there is this sort of. I just never thought they'd do this. I never thought the Department of Education would go. You realize you're all you're all admitting to crimes here. Like these are. You can't do these things. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they have the civil rights issue, they have the fraud issue uh, to consumers and students, and then they have the fraud issue to the Department of Education, who they have been telling for decades that they're not racist in order to, you know, abide by the uh, regulations. And uh turns out that they, they, they're now saying they've been racist for decades. By the way, just before we move on, actually moving on, but not quite what you were planning on moving on, very quickly, since we're talking both about education and lawsuits, I've been told by Little Bird that as we speak, parents uh, from the Institute and other schools are are congregating, conflating, and getting increasingly annoyed about the results in the Leaving Cert and the failure of their their chicks and their chickadees to get the place they had so they desired to get in CEOs. Apparently, the in the institute and this is um, I haven't been given definitive numbers, but I am assured, for example, that the number of H ones that would the, the historical average of H ones in the institute and the number of H ones awarded by the institute was radically reduced. Yeah, I, I I am familiar with the institute. They, not even just the parents, but the the structure of the institute itself, will not take that. You know, the notion that you get a lot of very dedicated, rather pushy people around South Dublin that are going to just lie down and say and that these people don't know any lawyers. I was told, I was told by a couple of people that they're looking at doing a class action. Um, now, my understanding is actually in Ireland you can't do a class action. I, I don't rightly know. I've never actually looked at a class action in Ireland. As far as I know, that's that's not something you can you can do in Irish law. So, But I, I didn't say that to them because, but because class or no class, there's going to be an action and there are going to be many actions. They are... St- Steaming, Gary. These people are so fucking annoyed. I mean, you. Um, I am. I'm hearing, for example, we saw the reports 
the, the outline. But you remember there was a report in St. Killian's, the Deutsche School. Mm-hmm. Apparently, apparently, several of the students that were marked down uh, from H1 to H3 were native, speaking, native speakers. Who one would assume can pass a German language exam quite well. well I was told by someone who was told by someone who correct. Well, you know, because sometimes people, they might be just not very competent in their own language. There are plenty of people, you and I, you know, Gary, who struggle with the English language. It's a, a wrestling game. But another teacher said, well, actually, no, I, they have corrected other papers in German or whatever. And they said, no, actually, the standard of German is very high. This is not the problem. But also, I'm hearing cases of schools where you have say cases where people you got two h1s and a h2 and what is happening if you have two different teachers three different four or five different teachers in a department they all have to come together uh, have a meeting and agree on those grades right so it's not just one teacher about their own but all of the teachers would get together and say no i agree that um Annie Doyle is better than Johnny O'Brien. Yes, that that's about right. And he's about the same as Mary Murphy and so on. And you have people where you have A1s being flipped between groups. Now, the thing about that is there's no basis to do that. It's simply a random thing. There's no... There's nothing in the information that they have about those students. They're the same school, they're the same year, the same place. They just have different teachers. And for no reason at all, you have grades being flipped. That's a completely random act without any any basis in the information available to, to the department. It's like they're just doing it because the algorithm is going on some kind of random walk theory. Oh, it's going to be fun. Do you think after this happened, someone sat down and went, so we seem to have, um, we may not have, but we seem to have systemically discriminated against the people who either have the money, in the case of the private schools, or in the case of the high-ranking public schools, care deeply about their education and tend to have very involved parents. Absolutely. And we seem to have targeted both of these groups on the assumption that this would never come out and we wouldn't end up in court. And, I've, and I, I checked out, it is definitely not the question of being fee-paying, it is a question of achievement, historic achievement. And there's two quick points to make about that. First is, we know that, and most people would have accepted this, there has never been an assumption in Ireland that fee-paying schools were acad- produced the best academic results. That was, I don't think that anybody has ever been under the, under that misapprehension that you, you go to Clangos or Black Rock or to Terranure to buy results. Back in the day, places like O'Connell Schools and Sing Street would have had a reputation for being, taking very poor, poor kids and achieving academic success through being driven and maybe beaten it into them. But, you send their children to a fee-paying school for different reasons. The non-fee-paying schools are attended by really ordinary... It's not just... We're not talking about South Dublin here. I mean, the, the FCJ in Limerick was for years, like five, six years running, was the top uh, results school in the country. 
um, Loretta Wexford, Fifth. I mean, these are schools that absolutely open, uh, non-fee paying basis. Now they're voluntary schools, which means they're vastly less funded, vastly less funded than uh, county council schools, like uh, community schools or desh schools. So they are they're squeezed. But yeah, there has to be what you, you could systemic situ. What was the systemic and institutional racism going on there? It's uh, it's gonna be fun. Good times for Good time. all involved. And I'll tell you what else. I was talking to somebody connected. She said, "Whatever else they have done, they have re-established." the legitimacy of the Leaving Cert examination for a long time. Yeah, I mean, if the, if this is the alternative, I, I think we'll just have to keep going with the Leaving Cert. So anyway, Gary, moving on to the other more interesting and pressing issues of the day. Just just a note on this, uh, on the rise of the far right, Michael. I don't know if you've, if you've read about it, but I was reading today and I, I looked in the Irish Times... And I saw a piece called The Far Right Rises, Its Growth as a Political Force in Ireland. And I thought, oh, okay. And then I went to The Independent. And I saw Big Read, The Irish Far Right is on the Rise. And I thought, okay. And I went to The Examiner. And I saw Far Right Violence Will Become Normalised If Government Does Not Act. And I thought, okay. Right. I went to The Journal. And I saw Investigating the World of Incels, Pickup Artists, and Men Who Hate Women. And I thought, well, that's about three years behind the curve, but okay. I think you're being generous. I think I'd say five, but anyway. And then also, Ireland's weak far right hopes to gain from online conspiracies and misinformation. They've all been published within the last two days, Michael. Well, I suppose... you know, Have we reached peak? Rise peak. of the far right journalism? Possibly. There's a question of balance here as well, because let's face it, Gary, you and I have got just sick and tired of yet another article on the rise of the far left in Ireland. I will say, if, you, uh, if, if you're looking at all these and you're like, but which one will I choose, Gary? I would say that the best of them is the Irish Times one, because that acknowledges that far right as a term can mean pretty much anything. Um, it quotes from a couple of people who kind of aren't terribly serious, like it quotes from Mark Malone. Not not great. I, one thing I found very fun with these articles is go look at the academics they talked, because there will always be academics. Oh, yeah. And go look at both their publications and their Twitter accounts, because some academics can get through the publication thing looking pretty good and 20 seconds on their twitter will totally remove any notion you may have had that this is an intelligent person on both the left and the right but they're like, <laughs> no judgment there no there was a chap i think he was um i think he was quoted in the independent that's how i went and i found his twitter account michael and the first thing is that he had wrote a book called is free speech racist ah and michael it was um was a good book. Let's just let's just put it out. Gavin Titley was his name. Okay, I just I leave that alone. Yeah, no, no one is going to touch that one. No, okay. I mean, in fairness, Gavin. I mean, really. He has he has a he, the endorsement on the back of his book is from uh, 
Priyamvada Gopal, who you may remember as that person who in one of the Oxbridge groups who just keeps accusing people of racism and got made a uh, professor there the other day for her fine work in accusing porters of racism. And I think that's sort of fairly broad views about white people in general. She did say things like, uh, I believe the, what was the phrase, Michael? White lives don't matter. Yeah. Also very fun for someone who spends her time talking about racism and discrimination is of Indian extraction and her family is from the Brahmin class. Well, you know, she has... What's the phrase that the left throws around to those used to privilege equality can feel like oppression? You see, you know, you're starting to speak a language. I just... Yeah, it is. It's all... It's all good postmodernist fun. It is. I, I just... I give you a... I just give you a quote from Mr. Titley. Yeah? Speech cannot be understood as either free or not free. It circulates in public cultures characterized by shifting and unequal distributed constraints and possibilities for meaningful communication. Meaningful communication, I think, is the the phrase. That's that's a statement that a point sounds like it means something, but is so torturously written. Well, yeah, uh, you adverted that to me before, and... I'm not saying rhetoric, I just genuinely don't know what that means. Yeah, but anyway, he says his book examines the contemporary far-right appropriation of free speech, while arguing that this cannot be understood outside of the racialized terms of belonging through value intensified by the war on terror and its endless aftermath. To be honest, after reading all of these articles on the free right and looking into these academics, Michael, you know when there are people you dislike and there are people you like, and there are people who... Like, there's a couple of the Antifa people who I'll see pop up occasionally on Twitter or protests that I'm looking at. And you don't, you can't dislike them, you can't like them. If you felt anything, you'd pity them, but you don't even get that far. You just sort of go, what are you doing here? Like, go home. Like, have a coffee. Yeah. And as I look at a lot of these academics, you just get this sense that 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you wouldn't have been allowed to become an academic. As in, you they wouldn't have let you. Just temperamentally or intellectually, someone would have sat down with you and just went, you're just not what we're looking for in academia right now. But I hear they're hiring down at the, at the barrel factory. Have you considered becoming a journalist, perhaps? <laughs> or something useful. Yeah, and you, you just... There are too many people with PhDs, and too many of those PhDs are useless. And I, I don't I don't say that because I disagree with them. There are lots of people I agree with, and then you look at their reasoning and go, well, you're pretty much a moron who's stumbled on the right solution, but you're still a moron. Yeah, well, we're all morons, Gary, just struggling our way through trying to work out what the shiny light in front of us is. But yeah, sometimes it's, it's like, you know... Make an effort, at least. Also, I'm getting kind of tired of articles written about people that don't attempt to ask those people anything. Also, okay, just speaking to the actual meat of the subject, the Irish far right... Is 50 people. I mean, how many... We can quickly say how many TDs in the doll there are. And I think... Barring you're going to be somebody who just willfully, radically, maliciously mis- misconstrues everything. None. 
By the way, TDs on the far left, I would say there must be a good half dozen. In the Shannon, none. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed I saw Kira Kelly put something up on Twitter recently. And she basically said the far right and the far left both put their principles above people. Which I think is, and I may be reading too much, is basically a point about the utilitarian philosophy of most of the far left and far right regimes that have just gone totally off the scale. And just started slaughtering people in the extent of a perfect world. And I love the amount of people who'll come in and be like, well, the far right is like racism and homophobia and beating immigrants. And the far left is just like, we want more equal tax distribution and yeah. to end homelessness. And you're like, lads, that traditionally has not been the far left platform. That's been the left platform. The far left platform has involved a lot more killing people in fields. Yeah, and not a great track record on either racism or but I, I see or, very or, or sexual equality who are like, well, the far right is Dachau and the far left is Sweden. They're like, mm, no, 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 no not really. We have a couple of like trots in politics. They'll go a little bit beyond Sweden. There are there there are no again to my knowledge. I I don't think there's any far right. County councillors, town councillors, corporation members. I mean, they're not, they're not there. I mean, this is the other thing I've noticed. And this, this, you'd think this would stop at some level, but particularly progressive academics and left-wing reporters have no ability to actually define the far right or to understand the nature of the right. So they start, like, I... You see it a lot with the pro-life. People talk about how right-wing the pro-life movement is. But most of the people I know high up in the pro-life movement are left Republicans. They're socially conservative, or at least on the abortion issue, although some are socially conservative across the board. But on economic matters, they're not right-wing. They wouldn't agree to any sort of right-wing or extreme right-wing economic idea. They're just social conservatives. People seem to have lost any ability to actually determine what it means to be on the right on different issues. Probably because everyone they work with is on the left or the far left. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the polling of academia, Michael, particularly in America. On Yes. Like, there are more communists than there are conservatives. Uh, and, and depending on what what faculties or what departments you look at, the, the, the more extreme it becomes if you're looking at things like Anthropology, sociology, education, it goes skews all the way over. The humanities generally are either on the left or the far left. Not so much in economics, not so much in the hard sciences, but in the humanities generally. Philosophy, philosophy less so, although still skewing to the left. But generally speaking, if you're in the humanities. Now, it's not quite as bad here, I think, as in the United States. But, you know... Give it another five or six years. Um, I, I will say the uh, on the journal, the one they do on the far right. There's a there's a mark I have, Michael, and it's to know how how good of a journal article it is, and it's it's this. Have they turned off the comments on it? <laughs> because the journal, you may have noticed, Michael, more and more now is just disabling the comments, and they're not. They used to go. This is for legal reasons. Even when you'd look at it and go. There's no legal reason for you to do it. You just don't want comments here. You don't want yeah. people being able to disagree with you on your platform. 
and for other people to see that. Whereas now they're not even giving a reason. Now they're just, you know, you don't get to talk about this one. So the comments are indeed turned off on their piece on nationalists. I imagine at some stage, Carrie, you have been accused of being on the far right. Um, I'm sure sometime last year there was a, there were a couple of occasions where either uh, maybe on Twitter, maybe it was an email that you refer to as, if not hard right, alt right, maybe. I mean, I've been called a fascist a couple of times. I, I, yeah, I, I, calling me a fascist I don't find particularly perplexing because I just sort of go, I'm not, though. I don't view it as an insult, I'm just not a fascist. Yeah, but let's I face mean, it, maybe Gary. in, you know, a couple of years I could drift into the old fascism. But I think, Michael, if I were to become a fascist, I'd be like a Spanish-style fascist, whereas what the, I think these people are looking for is Nazi. Yeah, and without getting tedious about it, none of them know what fascism is. They don't even know what it actually means. They're just, oh, fascist is Nazi, which it's not. It's I remember just... talking to someone, and they, they, they called me a fascist. Like, but no, I'm I'm too right wing to be a fascist. <laughs> and I am. I, the, the the fascists the fascists saw themselves as a third way party taking the best of the left and the right. Yeah, they're difficult to understand in the traditional left right structure because of that. It also makes it deeply amusing when politicians say, "I want to move beyond the left and the right and find a third way." I'm like yes, now we've seen the third way. Yeah, 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 we tried that. Didn't didn't work terribly well. People were deeply unhappy with it. There were all sorts of third ways in between the first and second world war. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, no, I, I think like a, a nice Spanish fascism. Maybe I could settle into phalange phalangism. I mean, I can go to like very nice buildings and throwing communists out of helicopters. That's. That sort of fascism, I think, is hard to disagree with. So you're, that's more your, your Chilean... I know, of... I know, but like, I'm very Eurocentric, Michael. This is... I just sadly. can't give it to the people down there. Yeah. Even though they have very nice wine. They do, and they're, I always do love meeting people from that period of Argentinian history or Chilean history. Because you can see, like, they'll, they'll say something about communists, and you get this, like... Apocalypse now stare into the distance and you can hear the helicopters and then they'll just smile. And you're like, yeah, good times. Very scary people. But they're all so lovely. But then, yeah, you get you get a couple of drinks into them and they're like, it was just better. It was just better to throw them out of helicopters. Look what's happening now when we don't throw them out of helicopters. What I don't know. It's a, my, my, my worry with these people, other than the fact it's just sort of a principled objection to throwing people out of helicopters, is that, you know the old joke about the about the guy who had, who had been made Lord High Executioner and in a, he was just finishing up work one night and in a, a bit of a hurry and he signed the wrong doc, his name to the wrong document and he ended up signing his own death warrant and they arrived to take him away. And they said, he said, show me the doc. He said, no, 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 this, I'm the wrong man. And he said, no, no, you're the right man. And we have the paperwork to prove it. I just had that worry that, you know, if that kind of thing starts on, one of the, these days, I'll end up in the helicopter and I'll be saying, no, 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 you have the wrong Michael Dwyer. Oh, no, we have the right Michael Dwyer and we have the paperwork to prove it. So I, I'm just on principle 
I, I, I'm against it. I'd like to just just keep everybody on the ground. Well, Michael, I promise if, if I ever lead some sort of takeover like that, I won't sign your death warrant. I'll have a secretary or something sign it. But that's a great comfort to me. <laughs> I'm sure I'll have people for signing things at that point. Anyway, the Irish, the Irish far right. Yeah, it's funny. It's not just in Ireland, although it's it is particularly peculiar in Ireland because if you think back to the crash, and we had mass massive levels of unemployment and debt and economic misery all over the place at precisely the time when the in a very very short space of time we'd gone from being a monochromatic culture where ethnic diversity was defined by me and and him, which was one person being an Irish uh, Catholic Gael and him being a descendant of a Scottish Protestant Gael. That was the level of diversity to being a place where we 16% of the population had been born outside the country and with the largest, which made us technically the most diverse country in the OECD. And even in that political context, there was no traction for a xenophobic party, for an anti-foreigners party, for a race, racist politics. It, no, I'm not saying that we couldn't do it. You know, we've had we've had we've had fascists in the past in Ireland back in the thirties. We've had odd bod parties like Oliver J. Flanagan's New Monetary Party or whatever it was. But right now, the notion that the the far right represents any kind of a danger to public order, let alone to the republic, in is just. It, it seems to be wildly overblown, but it's a narrative. I, I suppose, you, yeah. If you you have to write about something, but what is the point of this? Is it to just simply, in a sense, distract from the nonsense of the fact that we have an Irish Antifa? Or what about the fact, Gary? Do you remember the photograph? I mean, not to be petty, but there was. Do you remember the protest? against a protest there was a free a free speech protest outside the doll which was characterized as being a far-right protest by some people in the media and counter protesting them were groups of antifa and other left-wing groups and sira remember sira do you do you remember um was project identity or um one of the european groups tried to have a meeting in Ireland a couple of years ago and Antifa beat the shit out of the one on Lewis. I don't recall many pieces about the danger of the far left then because I think the thing now is they're saying, well, there was a piece of, there was some violence at one of the protests. Uh, one person got hit by some wood wrapped in a flag, apparently. Yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't assault others. They're not really indicative of the rise of anything, is it, though? It's... No, but I go back to the point. You've got, you've got all these people protesting against these wicked people. And nobody points out, the, the, at least what to me seems to be the, the gross irony of Sarah, which is the political branch of the group that killed a young journalist, shot dead a young journalist in Derry. Yeah, but they're kind of left-wing. And... Yeah, and, and, and that seems to be a rather more serious attack of the democratic fabric of the of the country when it, if you're talking about what it is to be a democracy or a republic i think shooting journalists is uh 
pretty serious, pretty well up there. Yeah, but I think the thing you're going to remember is that the Irish media, the people involved tend to be very much more on the left. And we tend to be better towards those whose views are more closely aligned with ours, which is not to say they're the same views. I don't what think. is it? Is it about no enemies to the left? Not even that. I think there is an assumption. There's a tendency to assume the best of certain people and the worst with other people. Well, maybe it's an assumption, a good faith assumption. They may be wrong, but they're well-meaning. Hmm. And I think there is a, a good bit of that there. That there is a bit more of a passive support for them. Although, from what I know of the average journalist I've met in the Irish Times, the Independent, not a lot of support for violence. Uh, speaking of support and for... Well, that's maybe slightly unfair. But speaking of support for violence... Cork County Council had an interesting response to an inquiry that you made. Yeah, so I, you may have seen that Cork County Council recently had Xi Jinping, one of the most powerful men in the world, do a video promoting their tourism industry. I think we talked about it on the, um, on the podcast before how weird it was. And so I started doing a little bit of look into agreements that Cork County Council has with China. And it turns out that they have a formal friendship agreement with one of the Chinese provinces. Now, this is not unusual in itself. Um, the Chinese are very big into these things because it's part of a normalization process and it sort of links them very much into the, um, into the rest of the world. And they're, they're very... The Chinese Communist Party has put quite a lot of money and effort into controlling their image and ensuring that their image is of a particular peaceful country, only slightly undermined by the fact that the state-backed Global Times about two days ago said that if Taiwan keeps pushing, they'll level it. Yeah, which is nice. Which is nice. So anyway, the Cork County Council have this um, this friendship agreement. So I looked into the province that they have the friendship agreement with, and it's a place called Jingsu, or Jiangsu. And I went and I um, looked into it, and it turns out that these lads are using slave labour in this province. Now, they're drawing these, well, forced labour. Apparently, there is a legal distinction between them, I should remember, but I don't. They're drawing these people from what the Chinese have termed re-education camps in a different Chinese province. These camps have... It's difficult to tell the exact numbers, but I think it's generally accepted that over a million members of Uyghur and other ethnic minorities have been put into these camps. Experts have said that this constitutes a cultural genocide. There have been two reports looking at the mass sterilization, forcible mass sterilization of women in these camps, their indoctrination trainings, things like that. That's what they are. And this province that Cork has a friendship agreement with is taking workers from there. Now, these workers don't get a choice on this. If they refuse, they will be detained if they're not detained. They will be classed as uncooperative. Some said their families were threatened. And they will go in for a little bit more of a, what a Clockwork Orange described as the old ultraviolence. Right. So torture, things like that. A yeah. lot of mental conditioning. And so I... I asked Cork what they thought about this. Actually, I asked Cork, the Cork press people, could they formally, could they tell me every link they had with China? 
And they did, and they sent me this lovely, you know, we're very happy to help. Here's all of the great work we're doing for a cork businesses thing, Michael. And then I had to follow up and sort of go, no, that's super. Um, do you have any thought about the use of slave labor in that province? Yeah. Which I did feel kind of bad about, I must say, because they were so very happy to talk to me initially. Yeah. And I found, Michael, when you start asking what someone thinks about slave labor when you have a business interest in the people conducting slave labor, yeah, you very quickly fall down the Christmas card list. Well, it kind of puts a, it, it's a damper on a conversation where you, you're there, you think you're having one kind of conversation, and then you realize it's actually a whole different conversation you're having. So I put up an article. They, they basically sent me back uh, little bits and then refused to send me anything else. Well, they say they were in meetings. Considering it took three days, I assume there was a point without meetings. But I put up an article saying Cork has friendship agreement with China's province linked to forced labour, cultural genocide of Uyghurs. And so they, for some reason, decided they would respond to this with an actual explanation. Because I had said, look, the article is up. If you have any comment, we'll amend the article. Yeah. And they sent a response, which then made me think, no, I'm just going to write a full article on the response. And here, here is the response in full. Hello, Gary. Because that is my name, Michael. <laughs> Cork County Council's friendship agreement with Jiangsu Provincial Government seeks to promote economic development, tourism, education, science, technology, health, sport and cultural links between Ireland and China. Cork County Council is aware of differences in values between Ireland and China and is satisfied that the issues in question are addressed by the Irish government in its contact with Chinese authorities both bilaterally and in multilateral fora. We will continue to work with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to ensure that relations between Ireland and China and local authorities continue to work towards our goals in China, which address economic, political and people-to-people priorities. Regards. Uh. Um, people-to-people priorities is a phrase I wouldn't use if you're getting back to someone who just said that you were now linked to forced labour and genocide. Uh, okay. I just well, wouldn't use it. And then so I got to go back to them and go, Hi, I've written a second article called Cork County Council, Forced Labour and Genocide, Merely Differences in Values. I think it is important to push that. They weren't responding to a question. They were responding to the actual article at that point. And that article was entirely about forced labour and cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. And their phrasing was, Aware of differences in values. Now, I sent... A number of questions to every county councillor. All 54 of them. There, are, I believe there are 55, but one of them doesn't have an email address. Sensible. And the email address on the Finifal uh, website does not work. So uh, not a single one of them has gotten back to me yet, Michael. And, you know, I don't want to s- say I suspect anything, but I would point out that I found out through the council that they have a senior official exchange program with... Um, with Jiangsu, which sounds like a lovely junket. Well, you know, China is a long way away. Even the airplane ticket would be expensive. And then to hang around, you know, stay in the better hotels, eat in the decent restaurants, it it would be an expensive old experience. But, you know, if the province of Jiangsu is going to stump up, just for the sake, obviously, of perfectly correct cultural relationship building and advancing the commercial uh, interests 
of the county and the people of Corkwell, then they'll be a perfectly good thing to. I'm sorry. There are values differences. I mean. <laughs> so it's one of those wonderful sentences where you're just like, you shouldn't have responded to me. You just shouldn't have gotten back. Dear sir, thank you for your letter of the 17th of the inst. While I recognise that Genghis the Great Khan and yourself have different approaches to urban planning, I do feel that we're fundamentally talking about a values difference here, which may not be possible to resolve at this juncture. I hope we find you well and some of the people in your city still alive. Yours sincerely, the office of the of the great can. You know what? I mean? What the fuck? It's a, a number of fairly sort of sensible, reasonably august organisations around the world have now said that what the Chinese are doing in uh, with the Uyghurs, and not just the Uyghurs, but particularly the Uyghurs, as it just come pretty pretty well close to the definition of a genocide. What it's done to the Falun Gong, what it's doing to Chinese Christians, uh, Catholics who are not part of the National Catholic Church, any kind of dissidents, what they seem to be intent on doing to the remnants of the democratic structures in Hong Kong. I mean, these are not values differences that you could say, well, yeah, you know. Well, I mean, they are technically they, value differences. Yeah, they are value differences, but let's, this is not, say, this is not like going to Panava and discovering that they eat horses and donkeys and being, oh, oh, geez, I don't know about that. Or even Korea discovering the dogs. This is, this is slightly, this is slightly more substantial. I think you made the observation, and I think it's not, it's, it's pretty accurate. Right now, China is occupying the same moral space that Germany did somewhere around 1934-35. We're hoping that the thing doesn't evolve any further, but even so, it's still pretty bad. And to just describe it as values, differences, <coughs> I mean, particularly as a time, you know, it would be, it, Gary, you're, you're a, a believer, I, I think, in realpolitik. That's you and Dr. Kissinger share a certain attitude to how you conduct foreign affairs. And if these, if Irish politicians were in that space, you know, what was the, the, the famous comment of, of the, the, the British politician in the 19th century when somebody said about Britain's friends abroad, he said, Britain does not have friends or enemies. She merely has interests. Mm. Now, if you're adopting that kind of approach to foreign policy, well, then you know what? This is a perfectly reasonable and coherent policy. But if you're if you're constantly on your two high two hind feet, speaking out of your arse about high moral concepts and the necessity for an ethical foreign policy, and respecting the basic human rights and we have to do the moral thing blah blah all of the time and then you're up against what is actually a moral a a a, a monster a moral monster and you just say oh it's values differences yeah i mean like i i i enjoy the odd bit of real politique i mean like there are certain times like let's say the afghanistan war the americans worked with some of the afghan and iraqi tribes and as part of that, they had to accept that they were going to have to overlook some children being raped 
because that's just the culture of those movies. Yeah, yeah. And the soldiers found that quite difficult because they had to, you know, ignore it in a very, you know, more direct way. Also, no one ever went, oh, by the way, some kids are going to get raped here. Didn't put that out in the PR release. But everyone accepted that the people they were dealing with were fucking terrible. Here there seems to be this thing of, not only are we happy to deal with them, there's no problem. This is fine. This is, in fact, perfect. This is just one of those things, when you're dealing with different cultures, you're going to have different values. And let's not be Eurocentric and narrow and racist about that. All values ultimately are relative. We only have our values because we were born here. It's simply an accident of time, of location and of birth. If we'd been born in China, we would have Chinese values. So let's not get too agitated about this. I mean, look, if Cork County Council had come back and said, well, look, some kids have to get fucked. I would have been like, you know what? At least you're honest about it. It's the hypocrisy that's the worst thing, Michael. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> it's really not. Tacit approval for genocide and the fact you're part of China is uh, PR offensive to say, no, it's, it's not genocide. And by God, if it was, what are you going to do about it? But, th- uh, but there's exactly the point. The, the, and that's and that's why these things happen. It's that the Chinese are very, very good at this kind of thing. And they recognise that it's much more effective have Cork County Council do their PR for them in Ireland than it is for the press liaison officer of the Chinese embassy to do it. So by putting these agreements in place, they're establishing, and sure, not just in Cork, we're not picking on Cork, Park just happens to be the one that came into view. But all across the world, there are groups like this, and civic groups, political groups, state groups, who are, offer, who are working as proxies for the press, uh, for the press, uh, press officers of the, of the People's Communist Party, for the Communist Party of the People's Republic of China. Oh, and it's not just Cork. I'm going to spend the next week, I think, just having chats with other county councils who have the same sort of agreements. And I want to to push this. Nothing will happen, and I have no idea nothing will happen. I'm only doing this so that if this does go from, like, 1935 to 1940, or maybe, you know, 1938, depending on how things go, Yes. no one involved can say, well, we didn't know and we were never asked. Yes. It's more of a history project than anything else. It's, it's like that, I was in my chat with uh, Theodore Dalrymple, I, I referenced that wonderful scene in The Sopranos where uh, Mrs. Soprano has gone to see a rather old-fashioned therapist and is very upset by his advice and she says, why are you saying this to me? And his last line is, so that you will never be able to say that nobody told you. It's a fantastic, it's like something out of a Greek tragedy and it's more a curse than a, than a blessing. And I suppose this is the very the useful function of of doing this. They would not. Oh well, we didn't know. Nobody told us. How are we to to know this? I did see, and I I was sent this by many people, but I was aware of it already when I published the article. Uh, that Fermoy in in Cork had suspended or terminated its 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 had 
it sought to terminate. I'm not sure if it went through the county council. I would imagine it did a twinning arrangement with a town in Poland because that town had said it was going to be an LGBT free zone. And some of the councillors on Cork County Council came out and said this was unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. And Fermoy has to be congratulated. So the county council had to basically, Fermoy wanted to do it, but the county council had to agree to allow them to break the twinning agreement. And there was talk about, you know, how we have to take a stand, Michael. And you can't let things like this go around the place. And this is 2020. And that, um, you know, we should really just compliment the town compliment the town and wasn't it terrible what these far right agitators have been doing it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to move beyond that though michael does it yeah i i, I don't know so it's not i'd be, be, be curious to break the, um break twinning arrangements it's that they don't think this is serious enough i'd be curious to know what, what uh, say lgb groups in china would say about the standard of protections and rights for uh, gay and lesbian people in, in China is um, just off since they're taking this fine and principled stand on this town in Poland that maybe they would find out what the situation in China was so they could maybe send China some flowers and say well done China on having such a tolerant and uh, uh, enlightened attitude to LGB groups there, but maybe, maybe they don't. Maybe it's not quite such a lovely place to be outside of, say, Hong Kong, for example. But I'm just speculating. Hmm. Would it shock you to know that the Xi Jinping regime is not terribly fond of homosexuals, particularly homosexuals politically agitating for things? Well, it wouldn't shock me to discover they were not fond of people, anybody agitating politically for anything. I, I did read a thing a while ago saying that they were cracking down on LGB groups across China. Not so much that not, this was the speculation, anyway. But the feeling was that sometimes it wasn't just because they were gay, but that they were organised. Mm. <laughs> Which, you know, is... At the end of it all, not much consolation. We're putting you in the camp, but don't don't worry. It's not because you're gay. It's because you're organised. I'm sure that will uh, fill them with uh, joy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank God we're not in here for a hate crime. Anyway, listen, Gary. We have we had tried desperately. We had committed ourselves to being less than an hour and a half and. Here we are, slightly over. So I suggest we release the, the viewer back into the wild and wish them well until next Wednesday. All the best. Bye-bye.